Welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. Hello and welcome. My guest today is Joyce Bergsma. She's a registered nutritional therapist practicing orthomolecular and functional medicine since 2010. I was really interested to chat with Joyce because of the close connection our eating habits as a society have on climate. At scale, the way the world feeds itself significantly contributes to global emissions. Statistically, in fact, the world's food system is responsible for about one quarter of the planet warming greenhouse gases that people generate each year. Think of raising and harvesting all the plants, animals, and animal products we eat. Beef, chicken, fish, milk, lentils, kale, corn, everything, as well as processing, packaging, and shipping food to markets all over the world. So Joyce's work with individuals that focuses on nutrition as a solution to anxiety and other health issues struck me as really just another way in to an important source of climate action we can all readily access. Joyce earned her bachelor's degree in Canada and later trained as a nutritional therapist in the United Kingdom. Prior to studying nutrition, she worked for the largest private health insurer in the UK. Joyce is a world traveler, as you'll hear, from a childhood in Canada. She's lived and worked in many countries and currently calls Amsterdam home. We chat about hobby farming, the far-reaching benefits of regenerative agriculture, principles of permaculture, food sovereignty, victory gardens, what it was like working inside Patagonia with the Sustainable Foods team, and about a new series of online courses she's launching. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, good morning or good afternoon, Joyce. Thank you so much for being here today. How are things in Amsterdam? Oh, they're fantastic. The sun has just come out after several days of rain and and dark clouds. So it's it's really good here. Right on. Yeah. You are a nutritional therapist, which I am not familiar with until meeting our mutual friend, Janet Bumpus, and sort of learning <laughs> a little bit about this field. So maybe we should start our conversation with what it means to be a nutritional therapist. And I think what's interesting is how this leads into the conversation around regenerative agriculture and connection with ourselves and the earth and climate. And so we'll get into all that, but let's start with what it means to be a nutritional therapist. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me here. It's, uh, It's really a pleasure. So nutritional therapy, all the field of nutrition is is quite similar, I think, in that uh, nowadays everyone who's focused on nutrition is looking at things in a really holistic way. So nutritional therapy incorporates nutrition, so diet and lifestyle advice about the biochemical unique individual. And it incorporates functional medicine, the right amount of nutrients, and using lab testing, so functional testing, in order to figure out where we need to focus on. So functional medicine means how, when I, when I hear that, I'm thinking like, how does my body function? How do I walk, stand, sit, digest food? How do I metabolize things? 
Exactly. So it's a lot about metabolism. It's about how the digestive system works and how the detoxification system works and the organs and glands that are involved in these processes. If someone comes to you about a particular health issue like anxiety, it's not like, oh, pop this pill and you'll be fine or you know, do CBT or some meditation, but it's more like, okay, let's test to see where in the body you've got some imbalances. And uh, there are some areas that are focused around anxiety more than other symptoms that people come in with. And so you might do a little bit more uh, focused functional testing. So those lab tests could be with urine or stool or saliva or blood. And when those results come in, you can really pinpoint where the imbalances are, and then do a really focused approach. So do you do these tests? Like, do people come to you and then you, and then you put them through sort of an assessment? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I have a long questionnaire that tells me already a lot mm. of things. Mm. Um, yeah, because there's lots of symptoms that, that relate to certain areas of the body. So that already tells me where I can start looking. Um, and then I do the functional tests. So it really depends on the individual, but I will do um, any kind of lab tests. I work with lots of labs around the world. Uh, so it can also be a little bit more local or potentially in your own language. Um, but, but yeah, I do a lot of uh, lab testing because it really gives you the ability to hone in on where to focus and it's a great measurement tool so you you do a test at the beginning and you do one maybe at the end after you've been working together for some months to see how like what kind of things have changed and how far have you come and where do you want to look going forward what are the next steps so so, so fascinating and i'm sure people yeah. link this with you know exercise and meditation and so wellness, yeah. we're in the, I'm thinking we're in the category of wellness with all of Completely. This. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you, you can't look only at the diet without looking at what else is going on in your life. So I talk to people, you know, I'm coaching people essentially, helping them build new habits, but really changing their lifestyle because whatever you've been doing until now is contributing to the point that you're at and the symptoms you're experiencing. And so the only way to change that is to really change your habits. And so I try to motivate people through uh, education, um, but also doing a lot of uh, coaching around uh, mindset and, and the way we think about things and, and how we view change and things like that as well. So, and then using supplements as well. There's many cases where supplements are needed, at least for a period of time. And dietary changes, exercise, um, relaxation techniques, especially with my anxiety clients. Hmm. I bet there's a lot of those right now. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, and it's it is. I think anxiety people, the number of people are, that are suffering from anxiety is going up, but also it's. I think it's becoming more and more acceptable to talk about it and to admit, hey, I feel really anxious all the time, or in these situations. And yeah, you, you can't make a long lasting change on your own. Like I see it time and time again, you know, even as an entrepreneur, I need support. So I get support from, from people in business to help me uh, continue to do the good work that I want to do. 
you know, it's like anybody that's in any kind of uh, role, you really need help with, with everything in life, right? We all need support yeah. and community. This I think is, that's become really clear. <laughs> this has become really clear. I want, you said something yeah. about um, mindset and that mm-hmm. shifting the mindset is so foundational to any kind of change. And I know this is, you know, in, in climate and climate education, it's also mm-hmm. comes down to, and so I, one of the things that I've observed in the, so I'm coming from sustainable travel and thinking about how to decarbonize travel and a lot of the, the language around change ends up sounding uh, really like preachy for lack of a better word. And I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, so we've been, I, I have been learning also a little bit about climate communications and, but it takes you into sort of these realms around what, what kind of messaging and approaches do bring us to change. Mm-hmm. I think we are at a, a historical moment in, in humanity where sort of a, a massive systemic mindset change is called for, and that's going to affect all sorts of things. And we see it mm-hmm. bubbling up in how we relate to food and how we relate to each other in society. And, you know, and then ultimately how we interact with the earth and how we manage yeah. excess dangerous gases in our atmosphere. So tell me what your how do you approach the topic of changing mindset? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's a very complicated thing in a way, but also very simple in that when you tell people to do something, there's a lot of resistance, you know, there's, there's immediately all of these um, reasons coming up within themselves that they might not even be aware it's happening, but uh, resistance to what you're suggesting. And what I've found is some of the best thing is to add ask questions that force someone to look internally and to question themselves. And then they are better able to come around to that idea on their own, which you've obviously um, kind of planted in their way of thinking. Um, But when they come around to it themselves, it's much more convincing. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's like anything when you're trying to convince someone of someone of your opinion, you have to be very gentle. You have to be um, accepting and and show them that there are some solutions, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just creating fear. It's mm-hmm. good to know the facts, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm a big fan of educating. But then what do people do with the facts? You know, you, you can't leave them feeling despair. And so that's my role as a nutritional therapist. And I, I also see that when I talk to people about um, the environment and, and the things that I get involved in there. You grew up in Canada, but you have lived all around the world. Give us a little perspective. I think your, um, global life is certainly informs your approach. Like you're, you can empathize with a lot of different perspectives. Yeah, it's, so I grew up in Canada, but I left uh, in my early twenties and I, I thought I would just be gone for three years, but, um, and every time I go to a new country, it reminds me to be, to be humble, to um, be accepting that we're all different and that we have different approaches. 
And you also, when you travel, see how people deal with things in the environment. Like, and it's, it's very easy to go somewhere and be critical of something. But when you live in a different place, then you learn to understand the culture and understand maybe why they do something like that. And also you can look back at your own culture and see where the things that are not being done well and how it can be improved. What's an example? Give me an example of a, a, an eye-opening experience. <laughs> yeah, I guess. So one of the first places I moved to was London in England. And when I got there, I was living in a, a big apartment with a number of other people. And we, well, it was quite a few people actually crammed into a small place. And so I just saw all the rubbish building up. And I was like, isn't there any recycling here? Because since I was a child in Canada, we always recycled. We, we had compost, you know, we did all these things. That was normal. So you move to a place where there's a lot less space, a lot less open space. Um, there's infrastructure, but, um, you had to actually take your stuff and walk down the street to where these big bins were on the street. And it was so inconvenient that it made it hard and discouraging and impossible. And so you're very critical in the beginning, but then you understand, yeah, you, you don't actually have a lot of space here. The b roads are so busy, you can't just bring trucks along. So you have to try and approach things in a different way and have those conversations in a different way. Mm -hmm. I remember um, learning about composting and recycling in Cairo and visiting oh. a I mean, they, it was so far advanced from how, so where I live um, is pretty rural and there's no um, municipal compost and mm -hmm. the recycling is, anyway, you have to separate it a million ways and take glass in a separate place. And But I remember yeah. thinking, you know, here in this really huge city and people who live in apartments where I would not have thought they would have that all settled out. They were way more advanced than we were. Um, so yeah, it's true. You, you do learn from every place you go. So did you, did you institute recycling and composting in your London share house? <laughs> yeah, I, I did. Not for glass because it really got a little too heavy, but um, for the paper and the, and the pla uh, actually plastic you couldn't do, but the paper we did. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but it's interesting that you say that about Cairo as well, because I later, because I lived in London for quite a few years, and I later discovered that everyone or a lot of people had these gardens where they were, you know, city people where there's like, it seems like there's hardly any space. They didn't have to go very far to have a little plot of land and grow their own vegetables. And I was like, okay, maybe Canada's doing better on the recycling side of things, mm -hmm. making it convenient. But in terms of having food sovereignty, London was doing much better than where I was coming from. And by food sovereignty, you mean? Yeah, having control over your access to food, what foods you eat, how healthy that food is. Mm -hmm. So what you buy in the shop, you know, it's, it's often from faraway countries. It was picked really early so that by the time it reaches you, you can, it might be in season. But I really didn't recommend at the time, at least, having tomatoes 
from England or in the Netherlands. You know, they just don't have the same flavor they do where I come from in Canada near Toronto mm-hmm. because they get picked too early and then mm-hmm. you don't get the, the glucose sweetening it from the actual plant. It has to get it just from what, whatever it has in the tomato at the time. I know some of the farm country outside of Toronto because my yeah. husband's family has a small farm place out there. I don't think they do much farming oh. anymore, but is that Canadian? is a, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so when did you come to Amsterdam? So I arrived in Amsterdam 10 years ago, um, mm-hmm. last month. It was 10 years. Wow. And, uh, Happy anniversary. Yeah, it's been a long time. Thank you. <laughs> we call it an Amsterversary. <laughs> Do you see little gardens? I know we had an earlier chat where we, in London, I guess they're called Victory Gardens, right? Because it was exactly. related to World War II and having food. Mm-hmm. Is there a similar, is there anything similar going on in Amsterdam? And do you encourage that, I guess, with your clients? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you talk about where you're, what food you're eating, then you have to discuss where your food comes from. And there are lots of these small gardens in Amsterdam. Uh, there's one in a park, which is right across the street from where I live now. And so you can have a, also a little house on there. Uh, so they're, they're small, but you can have a little house on there. And in the summer, you can even sleep there. And they have a, a, like a bit of water and electricity. But then you can really grow lots of vegetables and have a little oasis away from your uh, apartment, because most people live in apartments. It's very densely... Um, populated here so you can do like um, urban camping you can camp in your garden do yeah, people do this exactly. are there lots of little huts with sleeping it. bags in them yep yeah oh they have beds and uh sinks and some of them have showers and Shut yeah, they're small and up yeah that's it's amazing really nice. wait i have to <laughs> yeah. dwell so what do they do they build them themselves are they i'm picturing like very charming perfectly beveled edges everything's 90 degrees square and fitted out are they darling or are they like what I would make with plywood and uh, No, some of them are even made with bricks. So they, they wow. can only be a certain size. So um, I, I don't know in uh, feet, but it's about 30 square meters, I think is the general size. So they're small. And I think the properties are usually around 150 square meters. So, well, everyone's just going to have to calculate that themselves. Do you, but. do you ever sleep in your garden house? Do you have a garden house? No, I have, um, I do have a garden, but it is a much smaller thing and it's not the kind with houses on it. So mm-hmm. mine is just an open strip of land in, um, it's, um, let's see, it's called, the translation is my city garden. Mm-hmm. And so you rent a plot and it's next to many other plots and everyone just goes out there to, uh, to do their, their growing, mm-hmm. which I do with some ex colleagues of mine. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, so it's really nice. You have access to water. There's sometimes some sprinklers or at least a hose or, or something. And, uh, and you plant according this particular area of land, it has to be organic. So everyone grows organically. Uh, and we go a couple of steps further and, uh, I incorporate permaculture and also regenerative agriculture principles. Mm-hmm. So say that's a great, um, great lead in too. So say when you say you incorporate permaculture principles, say what that is. 
Yeah. So, so regenerative agriculture is um, a form of agriculture that is trying to sequester CO2 from the, um, from the air and put it back into the soil. And regenerative agriculture also incorporates other types of growing. So organic and um, permaculture, which is really about design, but um, Mm. in a way that looks after uh, people and the land and the animals and everything in it and ensuring that people have a fair share. So regenerative agriculture is the way it, it sequesters the CO2 is it's um, you're, you're doing things like using mulch, never leaving the soil bare, um, always having some kind of either plant or dead plant matter on there, looking after the uh, organisms that are in the ground. So not digging or digging as minimally as possible. So there would, you're not using tractors. You might use some kind of machinery if you're using a, a bigger uh, plot of land, but it's not um, like these massive heavy tractors. And it really tries to minimize what you do with the soil and using water features and incorporating a lot of different things in the environment, not pulling out all your plants at the end but leaving them there so that the the organisms keep continually are fed mm-hmm. because it's all about the organisms yeah and like a component of observation in permaculture right like the before you design your garden you observe mm-hmm. how things are there like the wind and the sun yeah. and and the water yeah, mm-hmm. how water flows in your um, in your land, and mm-hmm. even how the animals and insects interact with what's going on in your land. Mm-hmm. So, so you, it's about minimal disturbance. Mm-hmm. You can start to see where, uh, of course, it starts sounding very like hippy dippy, but you can really start to <laughs> see where if you spend a year maybe it might take a while right to see all the seasons if you spend a bunch of time really understanding your land and then planting it you're going Mm -hmm. to have just a whole different way of engaging with the world and thinking about your impacts in the world and i feel like i can access that in my mind readily now having spent a year in a rural environment but when i imagine like we're going back to San Francisco soon. I mm-hmm. like I don't even our backyard, quote unquote, is decked over. Like I don't know what I would how I would observe my land. I don't have any land. I could put some pots no. out and observe things, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, well it's it's interesting. I mean, you were mentioning that you have um a fruit tree outside yeah. your window, right? The apricot tree and it, how it's like yeah. Now they're getting red in the last few days. It's really something to watch. It's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. And um, but you, you also have um, birds coming around. And I'm sure if you get close to there, there's insects around. Mm. You know, what? normally the, the normal approach in monoculture farming is to, if you see a bug, you get some chemical to kill it. In um, regenerative agriculture and permaculture, what you do is you observe that that bug and maybe you allow it to to take its share because it's there, it's got a role in in the environment as well. But you might 
see, okay, let's observe that. And why is that there? And what's going on? And um, if you've ever seen the, the movie um, Biggest Little Farm, um, they really talk about this. So they have a major snail problem, um, which is eating all of their fruit trees. And like the first year they couldn't harvest anything virtually because it was so complicated. And they're like, well, you know, what can we do about these snails? And it's, it, part of it was like, why are the snails there? Uh, but the other thing was they let the, the geese and the ducks go free in this area and that fed them. So they ate all the snails. So there's like a natural way to control things without using chemicals. And then later they discovered that there was some reason there was something missing somewhere that the snails were attracted to this area. Hmm. So if you, if you disrupt an ecosystem, mm -hmm. then you are going to have a knock on effect to things you can't, you can't even begin to imagine, you know, mm -hmm. and through observation, you can kind of start to, to visualize it. Mm -hmm. It seems like I can imagine this is kind of um, at the root of your work with your clients is sort of mm -hmm. unpacking down to like getting to a base level because over time, all these knock-on effects level up to whatever unhealthy vessel we've created for ourselves, right? Yeah, completely, completely. And sometimes, you know, you've had things that you've been doing or there's been issues under the surface that you're not aware of. And then it just takes one more thing to knock you over. Mm -hmm. You know, like, especially, you know, having gone through a pandemic, that was just the extra stressful event that pushed some people over the edge, you know, health wise, but maybe there were already things going on in their body that, that mm -hmm. meant that they couldn't handle one extra stress. Give me an example. Like, so, ex can you give us like patient Jane Doe? <laughs> um, yeah, let me see. So, so I have a client who, um, she came to me because she had, uh, she was at a point where she was getting panic attacks and that was making her throat kind of close up. So she, she found it very difficult to swallow and she was ending up choosing really bad foods for her, which then had an effect on her skin. And, um, so when she, whenever she was feeling this um, tension in her throat, that also could trigger a panic attack. You know, it was a bit of a, a cyclical thing. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, she had, you know, suffered some trauma. She had had, as a child, she had had some an eating disorder later on, um, recovered from all of these things. Um, well, you never fully recover, I guess, from mm. trauma, but but she had she had done very well and she was successful in her career. Um, but every, she, she never managed to really get over the anxiety. And so we worked together for the, and so actually when the pandemic happened on one hand, it was very good for her because she was able to stay at home and kind of avoid some of the triggers of anxiety. Cause it wasn't just um, her throat closing up or, or certain foods or things like that but there were many triggers in her life. Um, but the pandemic also created additional stresses on one hand. So it was like, it became too much. And then 
her, she found that this whole thing with her panic attacks was increasing as a result. And so that's when she was like, okay, I've tried everything, but you know, now I'm going to try nutrition. A garden. <laughs> a garden. Yeah. Oh, that would be nice. Yeah. But she, uh, <laughs> she lives right in the smack dab of, uh, London and doesn't have as many options. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately the number of gardens are, are, uh, diminishing as, uh, the population grows. So, mm-hmm. yeah. and so what did you get to the bottom of it with her or is that still working? Yeah, she's, um, she's doing incredibly well right now. So, um, we did some testing and, uh, and had a look at some imbalances in the body. She, uh, also takes certain supplements because her, her anxiety is so deeply ingrained that there is probably, um, like a genetic factor where genes have been turned on Mm. that might've predisposed her to anxiety. Mm. So she takes a number of supplements that really almost completely cleared her anxiety. And, um, and so we catch up now every once in a while to, to see what needs to be adjusted. We also, in case she ever gets a panic attack again, she has like uh, a plan for what she does and what foods she incorporates and what are safe things for her to eat that don't further trigger her so -hmm. that she can go through all the processes of, of the other things she does as well, um, without being totally immobilized. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she's doing a lot better now. It seems like the, um, you know, regenerative agriculture and in the carbon removal, um, community, Mm -hmm. we talks, you know, it's like the CO2 capture and storage is, is the focal point of it. And then you get in all these debates about, how what's the permanence of the co2 storage and it's almost like a misdirection on the benefits of regenerative agriculture which are so expansive right it's the yeah the there's so much benefit to be gained by eating good food just for yourself and your outlook mm-hmm. and and then there's all the natural benefits but this, do you think, so my upbringing, you know, uh, my mm-hmm. mother is an operating room nurse and very, you know, Western medicine kind of, mm-hmm. I just feel like the pragmatic modern person, like we've sort of eschewed this holistic thinking. It's like in this category of tie dye and people who never wash their hair and Birkenstocks and this you know it's sort of been lumped in one category of of behaviors that is like an outmoded i see this now as an outmoded kind of stereotype around holistic and organic perspectives how like yeah. what do you see from your work like now it's starting to feel more modern and sensible and like how ridiculous if you're not doing these things but you know, for someone yeah. who grew up the way I did, it's still kind of like, I have to fight my internal urge of like, oh, this is a bunch of hokum. But it's not. It's like, <laughs> yeah. do you see no, this it's, it's, shifting in your, like in your community and your work? Do people come in with my kind of yeah. perspective and then you set them straight? Yeah. Well, so I think a big, a big 
part of how this all came around was this this attitude of um, you know the human race is better than anything else mm-hmm. on on earth right so we have the right to exploit it and exploit whoever we want to get what we want we do that i mean you see all the issues with race and um, how we treat animals and then how we treat the ground it's just like plant what you want, throw the chemicals on, and then extract what you want. There's no consideration for how we replenish or how we just take what we need. It's all about more, 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 make more money, take more things, um, be better, be more powerful. And I think that there's a big shift in the mindset. And that's why this is all happening. Because when you look at how the climate's changing and how that will affect us, we realize, hey, we can't not care about the environment. We can't not care about the animals because they are part of the same ecosystem as us. You know, I don't know if you um, heard about the donut economy, but it's um, like Amsterdam is uh, kind of adopting this approach. And it's like when you make any decision, you have to consider the people in it, you know, the animals, the economy, um, but everything and everything has an equal standing. And that's the way it should have always been. So I think regenerative agriculture is just part of a mind shift back to what it should have been all along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, yeah. I, and I see more and more traction for that in mainstream mm-hmm. venues also. Joyce, you're developing classes I think like online classes. Is this right? Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm doing a, I'm developing an online course around anxiety. And so in addition to the one-to-one consultations that I do uh, programs that I work with people for six months, um, I'm doing this smaller course. It's six weeks long. And each week we go through the different areas that could be a cause for someone's anxiety. And we explore that a little bit. We talk about functional testing and how that's relevant and um, and the kinds of things that people can do to discover what is their own specific issue around that and what are the things that they can start incorporating in their lives. So it starts to really make a bit of difference. You know, there's the education part that I really love because I like to empower people so that no matter what situation they're in, they can just... Um, use those same principles and approach it and help themselves um, mm-hmm. and educate other people. But then you have the practical side of it as well. So like, great. How do we, what's the area I need to personally investigate or areas because it's all connected and likely you have more than one thing that's contributing to your anxiety or any health issue. So you, I want to hear a little bit about your family because I don't think, well, none of us end up where we are without some influences, but you must have had farmers or something, something organic in your family. Yeah, um, I had, uh, so my grandparents, they were uh, immigrants to Canada and they had a farm. It was more of a hobby farm. So they had about 20 cows and they had uh, a a bit of an orchard where they were um, growing grapes, not just for themselves, but but to sell as well. So they sold to Welch's uh, grape juice and grape jam. And, um, 
And then my grandmother had a massive garden, like way bigger than the one I have right now. So I look back at it and, uh, and I, with envy, really. Um, so I, I kind of grew up hanging around the farm a lot and uh, picking vegetables and not getting a specific education in it, but being there all the time and, um, and helping out a little bit. And then my bar- parents as well, we lived in the city and uh, my parents always were growing some kind of vegetables. So it was like, okay, we're having dinner. We're going to have a salad. Please go get the tomatoes from the, um, from the back garden. And so my mom did a lot of cooking and, and that was a big influence. But then, you know, you're in your twenties, you're doing some cooking for yourself, but yeah, you're also just living life. And I was traveling at the time as well. Uh, so it wasn't until later after I'd seen these victory gardens that I was like, ah, oh, I really would want to try and have a garden and grow things. And then I studied nutrition because um, I did my degree in Canada, but I later studied nutrition in England. And and then I um, really got exposed to the idea of, well, where is your food coming from then? And how do you know that your food is healthy? And why is organic healthier? And, you know, then you find out things like in Finland, there's not really any selenium in the soil anymore. So they have to supplement it or there's no iodine in in the UK. And you're thinking, yeah, so the soil really does make a difference as to what it can give to the plant. You can't take it for granted that every plant is the same. So that like drives home the fact that you really need to have a lot of variety. And then it was like, okay, well, let's look at the soil. Like, is my soil healthy? And that was when I discovered regenerative agriculture. And I was like, great, you can do everything. You can help the environment. You can build the soil, which gives you healthy plants, which helps you be healthy. So it's, it's so interconnected. You can't, you can't possibly do one without the other in my view. So, Mm -hmm. and did you, um, you spent a little bit of time, uh, in the, in the sustainable food division at Patagonia. What is that Patagonia provisions or, um, yeah, I, unfortunately, provisions is only in the U.S., um, mm. although they do get some of their products from um, from Europe, some amazing products. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, it's, it's there and in Australia, and um, I'm not sure if a couple of other places, but, but what we did was um, I was kind of on a campaign to get the company uh, to support some colleagues and myself in having a garden so that we could educate our colleagues and, and the staff. And I was, um, and this was part in, of my job as in Amsterdam, in, in uh, Amsterdam. Yeah. Their mm-hmm. head office for Europe is in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And I was also as part of my job working with the caterers to try and help them to be more CO2 neutral mm. so that we internally could also be CO2 neutral because Patagonia has a really, um, a tough goal that they set for themselves that internally, and this is mostly around their products and materials, but, but I really took that on as part of my role as well to help all their internal suppliers uh, be more CO2 neutral. So what it it sounds like, I mean, um, in the coming from the outdoor space, you know, Patagonia Mm -hmm. is really an iconic leader brand and it, feels like that must have just been such a cool job like 
so many, I'm imagining a lot of like-minded folks like you in the same team and funded. What was your day-to-day like there? And were you, so also, I mean, on this point of like looking internally carefully at the CO2 emissions associated with Mm -hmm. all elements of the business, can you say a little bit about that? Like, did you have to get into calculating and recording and what was that like? No, that's, that's really not my forte. <laughs> my, uh, so I was involved in, uh, in like facilities related projects and, um, and the catering was part of that and all the looking at all the internal suppliers. So I was working more on that and, um, and we were also at the time looking for companies that could do those calculations for us. Like with the food, you know, I was looking at it from one perspective. When I worked for Patagonia, then I was looking at it from an environmental perspective. And then we started talking to all of our suppliers uh, to see how we could improve things and work, make a plan, a long-term plan. Well, not so long-term because the, the goals were pretty tight, but, mm. but make a plan for a year on year. How could we reduce it more and more? The, uh, mm-hmm. So I didn't do any calculations with regards to that. So what's coming next? So you sounds like you're staying in Amsterdam. You're not planning another big move. You're launching your courses. What do you see coming ahead? I'm doing these programs and also um, this course. And I'm after that, I'm going to be developing several other courses that are going to be online. And um, yeah, I see... Like living in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, you know, the quality of life is really good. Um, And of course, I make my own work-life balance. um, And I try to minimize how much I travel and do it in a good way as much as possible. But I see a lot of opportunity by traveling to other places where I can still educate myself and educate other people and expand my horizons and keep an open mind. And I think that's also incredibly important. You know, it's like with a donut economy, you don't just take one thing into, um, into account, but I think there's a lot of benefit from sharing knowledge. I am looking at doing some work in Mexico as well. So when I travel, it's not just for short trips, but for longer periods of time. So, because I do all my work online anyway, so mm-hmm. it's really, yeah. That's I, also I think Corona so, has really um, opened that up. It has. So. I, you know, well, it's one of the um, sort of tenets of in the travel space where we're talking about build back better. One of the core elements in that is to take fewer trips and stay longer when you do, because mm-hmm. the benefits to you and the local community. Are greater and your um, your negative impacts are reduced because you're not using yeah. as you know flying as much. Um, I'm not a proponent yeah. of like everybody should stay off planes and never fly again because I think no, it's we not need travel and and yeah. so the whole you know the goal here is to reimagine travel and embed carbon removal in travel. Mm -hmm. And I think I see that also in your work is like, if everybody followed regenerative agriculture, we'd be, we'd have embedded, um, we'd have embedded healthier lifestyles without having to resort to so much. Exactly. um, Yeah. And I, I really love the way, 
that what you told me about the work that you guys are doing, like really promoting travel that is responsible, because it's going to happen. It's it's unrealistic to think we can ever really stop. Um, but to do it responsibly and to also get in with the locals and not just so mm-hmm. that the the money really trickles down and supports the local economy in a in a real way. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. really amazing. The statistics on that stuff just blow your mind. Like um, the amount of uh, tourism people talk about leakage, economic leakage. So how much of that money when you're in a foreign place stays there, and how much is actually headquartered outside of that country? In our category, in the adventure travel space, the research we've done with our tour operators indicates, you know, 65% roughly of what you spend when you're on a, on an adventure travel type trip, um, will stay in that local economy. Even if you're, you know, if you're guided, certainly, um, the, the adventure operators who are guiding are using local suppliers and, um, Mm -hmm. it's a great way to keep your money. And using local guides, I'll end up on a whole speech here. But when you hire local guides, you are really getting the inside scoop. I think a lot of people like to travel and say, I like to do it on my own, um, which is great, and do it on your own. But occasionally, hire somebody who really does know. When I was in Cambodia, Mm -hmm. I went on a food tour with a local guy. And it was just incredible. And he took us through all these little stalls. And my son ate all this crazy stuff that I never would have been able to order or known to order or find it was a real yeah um anyway it was really cool yeah I had the same thing when I went to Myanmar I went on this three-day trip with this local guide and uh, and a group of people and it was just amazing I never would have known to go to these places mm-hmm. if it wasn't for him mm-hmm. yeah exactly well Joyce I love chatting with you thank you so much for taking the time We will. It was um, great. Thank you, Christina. Where can people find you on Instagram or LinkedIn or do you have a website? Yeah, um, my website is my name, JoyceBergsma.com. And uh, you can join my Facebook group, which is uh, Squash Anxiety Through Nutrition. Um, and that's where I'll be also announcing the course once it's released, uh, that's coming up in the next couple of months and on Instagram, it's Joyce Bergsman nutrition. Terrific. Thank you so much, Joyce.